You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And today, Ryan, you're going to introduce us to the idea of backpropagation. Yeah, I thought I would talk a little bit about the backprop algorithm. It's, uh, you know, and, and it's not so much that I would expect to be introducing our listeners to backpropagation. Um, so much as I thought it'd be kind of fun to talk about it and discuss some of the context around it. So I should say first, backpropagation is the algorithm that we most often use to train neural networks, including deep neural networks. And there's quite a, a variety of ideas and discussions of it out there that range from kind of at one end where it has a kind of a mystical property uh, where errors in the output of your of your neural network become changes in the weights throughout the uh, throughout the network. And then at the other end there's some there's there's ideas like, you know, basically things like my PhD advisor David Mackay would just say, "Oh well, backpropagation is just literally the chain rule um, that you would learn in an intro calculus class." And uh, and there's a sense in which kind of both the, these things are true, but the sort of interestingness of the backpropagation algorithm lies somewhere kind of between these extremes. Um, so essentially, what it is is it it is a way to compute the gradient of a function, and that's relevant to training a neural network because a neural network is a function that uh, takes inputs and produces an output, typically something like a scalar output, but it could be kind of you know a label or something. And we have a bunch of examples. And what we're trying to do is get good at learning a function that takes, uh, that say takes an image and produces a label of you know whether it's a cat or a dog or something like that. And then we have some notion of error on those outputs. And what we'd like to do is use that error to determine what the weights are of the network. So it's a little bit confusing first because we're not training kind of the inputs to this function. We're training the parameterization of this function. And the way we do it is we imagine that there's a what we think of as a loss surface, some error surface, where uh, what we're trying to do is make that surface low. We're trying to find a place in the parameter space where the surface, you know, where the function is actually, that is the error function is low. And that, that just literally means, in this case, that we're doing well on a lot of the examples, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And the question is, in high dimensions, and neural networks might have, you know, millions of parameters, um, the question is, in high dimensions, how do you navigate this very complicated surface and try to find a good place that's a minimum. Like we do in a lot of different kinds of, uh, of machine learning, we use some variant of gradient descent. We look at the direction of steepest descent and maybe we look at sort of curvatures or second derivatives and things like that, but ultimately we try to go downhill. And, and so we need to know what direction downhill is and that's gonna be the negative of the gradient. And so the gradient is a vector that points in the direction of steepest increase, and we want to go in the direction of, of steepest decrease. And so the question is, how do you compute the gradient of big and complicated functions? So that's the name of the game. That's a lot of machine learning just summarized right there. How do we compute gradients? And, uh, and many papers at leading conferences are basically all about just deriving a gradient of some idea. So backpropagation is a particular kind of clever idea for, uh, for computing the gradient of a big neural network. And basically what it boils down to is it's a particular way to um, perform what's called automatic differentiation. So sometimes in textbooks on neural networks, it'll have this kind of like this kind of mystical, you know, sort of presentation where you take that difference between the label you wanted and the label you produced, and then you sort of squeeze that through back through the network. But really what the backpropagation algorithm really is, is the idea of reverse mode automatic differentiation. So differentiation is just the, the same procedure that you, know, you saw in intro calculus. If I have a big complicated function, 
there's a couple different ways I could compute the gradient of this complicated function. The first kind is sort of, again, the sort of intro calculus symbolic differentiation where I have a set of rules, you know, where if I see e to the x, then I write down e to the x dx, and if I see, you know, x squared, then I write 2x and things like that. So symbolic differentiation, which takes a um, some algebraic representation of a function and then produces and then processes that string and produces a, a symbolic representation of the gradient. And then there's another idea called essentially finite differences or numeric differentiation, which observes that gradients are just collections of derivatives and derivatives are just rise over run. And so if I can compute the rise for a given run, then I can I can compute a, a gradient approximately. But uh, automatic differentiation, as it, we typically talk about, is, is actually a third thing. Um, and backpropagation is an example of this. Essentially, you can think of it as kind of a way to automate the process of the propagation of information that needs to happen to compute a gradient. And so it sort of feels in some ways numeric, but it gives you an exact answer at the end. And it turns out that if you have a particular kind of function which has a large number of inputs and a small number of outputs, then uh, you can write the chain rule in such a way that is very efficiently computable sort of back to front. And that's exactly what the backpropagation algorithm is about. So here's the trick. Ultimately, neural networks are compositions of functions, typically. So you'll see a neural network in a paper, and it'll be a bunch of layers. And most of the time, those layers are something like a linear transformation and then an element-wise nonlinearity up to some scalar output. So it's a composition of these layers. You get the output of one, and you apply, and you make it the input of the next layer. And if you were to write out the chain rule for a big composition, then you would see that you would have these kind of, uh, these kind of matrices that you multiply by each other. Uh, these are the Jacobians of each layer, essentially. And then at the end, you would wind up with a, a gradient of the last layer. It would be a, a matrix, but a matrix that would be sort of long and thin. And so if you were to do the usual kind of chain rule, then you would take a matrix and multiply by another matrix. And these matrices would sort of have dimensions of, of like, you know, number of parameters. So they'd be big. And you would take these matrices and you would multiply them together left to right all the way until you got to the end. And then you multiply by a vector and that gives you your overall gradient. And multiplying matrices together is expensive. It's something that's essentially a cubic operation. It turns out that matrix multiplication is, is closer to quadratic. In theory, and this is a, but this is a, that's a conversation for another episode, but nevertheless, essentially cubic for practical purposes, and and what that means is it doesn't scale very well with the size. But if you imagine this kind of string of matrix multiplies and then multiplying by a vector, and you you could say, well, actually, rather than starting at the left, why don't I start at the right? So what I'm going to do is start out with a by multiplying a matrix by a vector, and that's more like quadratic. So big difference. We could solve much bigger problems suddenly. And then what I get out of that afterwards, starting right to left, is I get, a I get a vector back. And so now, next step, going right to left, is I get yet another matrix vector multiply. And so what it does is basically takes your problem from do a bunch of matrix multiplies followed by a matrix vector multiply, which is basically cubic, and turns it into a problem that is one of going right to left, where you go, you're just doing matrix vector multiplies the whole time, which are much cheaper. And so it's essentially observing that if you wanted to compute this chain rule, then you could you get the option to do it left to right or right to left. And if your function has a lot of fan in, it starts with a lot of of, uh, of inputs and produces a small number of outputs, then you're much better off computing that thing right to left than left to right. 
And that's what backpropagation is. It it just it observes that neural networks tend to have a small number of outputs and a big number of inputs, and so therefore you should compute the chain rule right to left instead of left to right. That's an insight that got reinvented multiple times over several decades until it finally really stuck in kind of the mid-80s and led to um, the kind of first version of multi-layer neural networks being successful in the kind of like late 80s, early 90s. And it is still the same procedure that people use to do deep learning these days. And there's a variety of tools out there that solve this to, um, with varying degrees of sophistication because it's, it's a very nice thing that once you sort of write it down, you know, you can compute using essentially kind of operator overloading using modern languages. So if you see things like, uh, so tools like Torch and uh, Theano and, uh, and also my group's uh, tool called Autograd kind of allow you to do this, this kind of layer-wise reverse mode automatic differentiation in a, um, in a very sort of nice and easy to use way. So we'll have links to those tools on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question is about real-time machine learning. Hello, Catherine and Ryan. My name is Marcos Carreira. I work in market risk management in Brazil. And I would like to know more about the challenges of uh, real-time machine learning, for example, you looking at market data and making trading decisions based on the most recent market data. Thanks for the excellent podcast. Thanks for the question. So this is this is something that comes up a lot. Uh, it comes up a lot in industry, of course, in finance, and lots of different places where you, you'd like to have responsive machine learning algorithms. And there's really kind of two things going on here that uh, we might we might kind of want to tease apart a little bit. The first is whether or not you're able to learn from data at real time, or whether or not you simply want to be able to make predictions at real time. And the first thing is super hard. And there's an entire area of online learning that's very important, but I would say that that it's you know it's not even anywhere close to being a real solved problem, particularly if models are quite complicated. But I think your question was about the second thing anyway, which is how do you make interesting predictions in real time? So most of the time there's a big discrepancy between how long a model takes to train versus how long it takes to run at test time. And a lot of there's a lot of models that are quite expensive to deal with at training time, uh, in particular things like deep learning and neural networks, um, but that are pretty fast and cheap at, at, uh, at test time. And so think about something like a support vector machine. So a support vector machine is all about you know finding the support vectors in a big set of data using something like a quadratic prog- uh, program. This may take a while to, to actually do the training, but then once you have the support vectors, then the idea is that you can make predictions using this small number of support vectors, and it might be very fast at test time. Neural networks, you might have to do the backpropagation algorithm, which means computing gradients, sort of forward and backward passes over your neural network, maybe hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of times over many, many data. Um, and this might take you know hours or days or weeks or something to do. But then when you need to make a prediction, it's just a question of going forward through the network once. And so something that might've you know, taken a very, very long time to train might take only sort of milliseconds at test time. Now that's not always true, but, um, but for a lot of models that we, that we care about, it, it is true. And for a lot of very popular things, uh, it's true. So situations where things are going to be slow are, I think there's kind of two main situations. So one is where maybe you have 
um, say like a very, very large number of features, like millions of features that maybe take some interesting amount of time to compute before you apply them to the machine learning, you know, give them to the machine learning algorithm. But the two situations where I think you most often see kind of expensive test time performance are what are called structured prediction models. So these are models where you're not just trying to produce a label like a single, you know, is this a cat or a dog or, you know, is the stock going to go up or down tomorrow? But you're instead trying to produce some kind of ensemble of labels. So maybe you're trying to actually label every single pixel of an image as being uh, foreground or background. Or you're trying to identify sort of, you know, the correct parse for some sentence or something like that. So models that we often call things like conditional random fields. Um, a lot of times these can be, you know, can be slow at test time because you have to solve some kind of optimization problem for every prediction you want to make. So in that kind of like, you know, image type example, then you might run some kind of minimization procedure like, um, you know, the graph cuts type algorithm. And this is going to be fast as, you know, fast in the sense that it's like an efficient polynomial time algorithm and it tends to work well, but it's probably not going to run it real time. So structure prediction problems are one example where things are, can be kind of slow, potentially, at test time. And then another example is where you want to integrate out a lot of uncertainty. So often Bayesian inference type things, uh, particularly where you have to do approximate inference using variational methods or uh, Markov chain Monte Carlo or something like that, uh, are going to be slow at test time because you have to sort of perform a lot of inference based on the current situation. And so I think there's some, some real challenges remain in trying to figure out how to do robust approximate inference kind of uh, on real-time data streams. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS. Our guest this week on Talking Machines is Danny Tarlow of Microsoft Research in Cambridge in the UK. And when we got a chance to talk with him at NIPS last year, the first thing we asked him is the first thing we ask everyone, how did you get where you are? I grew up in Oregon. I went to school there as a kid. I went to Stanford as an undergrad, did computer science, and then upon finishing there, I went over to Toronto uh, for a master's and a PhD. And then from there, over to Cambridge. And you have a paper out recently about um, where you took a a lot of NCAA football data and you went through it and compared teams that should have been playing against each other. Describe your paper a little bit and what you found. Yeah, so the the motivation behind that is if, if you've followed the NCAA football, there's been this long history of trying to decide who the winner is uh, at the end of the year. And it's this very difficult setup because you have a whole bunch of college football teams and the seasons are very short and you can't ask them to play games very often. <laughs> what you get is you get these, so it's actually even worse than that because the games that are played are often played within leagues. So what often happens is you get a small number of games, they're played sort of within league and there, there's very rarely a game across leagues. And you do this for 12 weeks, 13 weeks, and then at the end of the season, uh, some way you need to figure out who the best two teams are, who the best four teams are. And of course there's all sorts of opinions on this, of course there's all sorts of people who think they're experts, and you know some people are, some people aren't. And uh, I was just, it sort of struck me that you know the, the sort of problems I like to think about are looking at the world and trying to figure out what uncertainty is actually there, and then 
you know, there's a branch of machine learning, which is about in the face of uncertainty, how do you make decisions so as to best accomplish some task? And I thought this would be a fun little exercise to say, you know, if we take this approach and this ideology and we wanted to apply it to uh, the NCAA football uh, scheduling problem, uh, how would that look? And so we wrote a paper about it and we sent it off to the um, MIT Sloan Sports Conference and told a bunch of, I guess, uh, sports-inclined folks and statisticians and whatnot about our opinion about how things should be done. So now there's one extra opinion out there. <laughs> so uh, do you have any strong opinions about the top four teams that have just been selected for, for this playoff? I and mean, this is the first year that there's going to be four teams in a playoff, uh, other than Oregon making it, of course. <laughs> I am an Oregon fan, um, but I try not to let that bias my, <laughs> my analysis here. Um, the one thing that I found interesting, so I haven't actually run the model on this year, so I can't tell you exactly what it's saying. Um, but what I did notice from past years is that one of the really key factors here is this cross-league uncertainty that comes out. And so I think it's very rare that the right decision, if you're really trying to figure out who the best team is, would be to have two teams within a league play against each other. Hmm. Um, I think there's often quite a lot of uncertainty about how the different leagues match up. And so I like the fact that this year there are four teams chosen from four different leagues. Um, sort of that, that feels like a good decision to me. So the last couple of years, the conventional wisdom has been that the SEC, the Southeastern Conference, has been the, the strongest one. So is that something that the data backs up? Um, I think, I think you know, I, I would Welcome want to, to ESPN, <laughs> Danny. We're going to grill you now. I don't want to uh, portray myself as too much of a sports expert here. Um, but I, I do remember thinking that, you know, the data does say that the SEC looked pretty strong from what I remember of looking at this. Um, although I don't think from my paper I'd have to look back at what the actual results were. I don't think it ever actually suggested that the best move was to put two teams from the same league in the championship game. Hmm. Hmm. So when you look back at the data that you did have, um, I don't know how deeply you ran your model, but did it did it predict any any champions, or did it? I don't know if you can use the word predict for something that has already happened. But did it reflect any any champions in college football? Um, you know, the the approach that we took here was less about trying to predict who was going to win, and more trying to just say how certain or uncertain we were about the different outcomes, and um, have a have a, some idea about this question of you know how sure are we that this league is better than this league, or how much uncertainty is there in this in these cross-league and within-league matchups. And so we didn't focus so much on how predictive the model was, more just about um, are our probabilities accurate. And I think you know this is kind of something that I think gets lost often in sports, is that there is a lot of noise or randomness um, that goes into these things that we just we, we're going to have a very hard time predicting who's going to win mm -hmm. uh, the championship game. Maybe we can say there's a 65% chance that the stronger team is going to win, but I think it's pretty rare that we have really strong certainty about these things. Microsoft Research Cambridge, one of the things that I, I think of them as being famous for, as of you as being famous for, is developing this true skill system to understand the way that, that people say playing Halo or something like that on, on, you know, on Xbox Live, the way that they stack up against each other. So is this work on ranking football teams related to the system that, that uh, decides what Halo players should play against each other? It is. It's um, 
the starting point for what we did was taking exactly the system that is used in the Xbox Live matchups. Um, and then there are slightly different concerns, though, in that setting versus the setting that we cared about here. So in the Xbox setting, it's really important to be able to make this work for millions of people. And you know, it needs to be fast. It needs to be something that you can set out there. And whatever people do, however many people want to play Xbox, it's going to work. And it's going to, you know, it's not going to hold up the system in any way. Um, so what we were interested in the sports world was saying, let's loosen the computational constraints a little bit. So we're willing to spend a bit more computer time. It's OK if this thing runs overnight. And so what we did is we changed the model a bit to um, have a bit richer model about mm -hmm. the uncertainty and so try to represent sort of you know these these sort of cross league comparisons or these cross team comparisons and uncertainty in those in a in a sort of richer way. So for the past couple of years, I think up until last year, you ran a machine learning March Madness competition, and then all of a sudden Kaggle took over and and you stopped. Um, well, the causality here might be a little <laughs> mixed up, um, but yes, that's true. So in I think it was 2008 or 2009. I was uh, I always enter a college basketball pool. I like you know as most people do in the U.S. filling out this bracket and making wild predictions and then <laughs> putting you know putting into a pool with friends. And so you know I had some free time and I thought let's let's try a different way of filling out my bracket this year. And I enjoy sports. I enjoy machine learning. And so I downloaded all of the season data for the year, and then I built a model, and I had my model make the predictions. Um, and then I wrote a blog post about it, and people seemed to like it, and so I got a lot of positive feedback. And other people that were interested, people that were asking me for the code, asking me for you know questions about how how it all worked. And so then I thought, you know, let's let's just make this into a competition. And mm -hmm. so I tried to sort of recruit some friends from the PhD. Uh, to enter in their their competition or their uh, entrance, and then also a bunch of people just from around the internet got involved, and so we had this little competition that we ran for uh, I think three years, and then um, the it is true that in the most recent year Kegel ran a similar competition, and I think they did a very good job at it. So you know they they probably did a better organizational <laughs> job than me in my spare time. Um, and you know, I was just busy and hadn't really prepared for it, and so I didn't feel the burning need to run it again this year. So while you were doing it, did you have any like really well-fit models? Did anybody do like fantastically well? Um, there's you know, there's a there's a guy called Scott Turner, who runs a blog now about his algorithm that he I think I haven't checked in the last few months, but. As far as I know, he's continually working on this, and he's been one of the competitors in this competition from the early days. And if you go to his blog, you can see him churning through the data. He's always making little tweaks. He's always running little analyses. Um, and I think he was one of the consistent good performers amongst the competition. Um, but as I was saying before, you know, these these sports competitions and these models that we have, it's just there's a lot of randomness that we're not taking into account. And so I wouldn't read too much into <laughs> any of the results that come out here. Now, I know NBA front offices are investing pretty heavily now in, uh, in data analytics. Uh, have you uh, considered going into, you know, uh, going into that business of sort of becoming a, 
a pro sports analytics type? I mean, uh, you know, I can't say that I've never thought of it. I played uh, football growing up, and I really enjoyed the sort of scheming and the idea of, uh, you know, how do you design an offense and how do you design a defense and how the sort of games aspect to it of how do you exploit the opponent. And uh, there's, you know, some parts of me that finds that very appealing, but I think that would be. I think that would be too big of a jump from what I'm doing now uh, at the moment. But you never know. You know, I won't say never. <laughs> <laughs> um, I saw on your resume that in 2008 you worked for the Obama campaign. Can you describe your work for them? Uh, sure. It was just a real short stint, but um, I happened to know the guy who was the head of the analytics team for the Obama campaign. And, you know, I was interested in the election at the time, and I was talking to him, and I said, hey, you know, I have a free couple of weeks. Uh, could you make use of me? And so he said, sure. And so I went out to Chicago. It was nice. They um, had this program where they would find a family to host you for two weeks. And so I stayed with a family that had a dog and a few kids. And, you know, they would make me coffee in the morning, and then I would go downtown and that go into great. the headquarters. Um, and, yeah, and, you know, there was... There was all sorts of analytics that people were interested in doing, just looking at all of the numbers, all of the data that was coming back from the campaign. And the question was just, what do you do with it? And you know, there were a lot of people there that were excited about different angles. And uh, they said, you know, just jump in and uh, experiment, see what you can figure out. When you have some sort of conclusion, bring me some data to back it up, and then let's let's you know iterate again. And so. It was a fun but very short process. So looking back on it, do you see any overlap or comparisons in, in the way that political data is analyzed these days and, and what you're doing in sports competition? I think so. I think there's actually strong analogs in the sense of in both realms, and I think you know some peop- guys like Nate Silver have really popularized this, but in both realms there's a lot of uh, people who are on TV and who are talking, and then there's a lot of data also to bring to bear. And I think we're seeing in both regimes that the relative strength of what's possible and how good the results are that are coming out of the data uh, is increasing. And so, you know, that's not to say that there aren't human experts that are probably better at setting odds for um, sports these days. But I think that in both cases, there's this kind of, if you do it right, there's this kind of view that the data isn't going to be as opinionated as uh, people might be. And so... Um, I think there's sort of a similar tension between those two realms. Did you feel like any of the data analysis that you did in the Obama campaign drove interesting decisions? Um, I think so. I mean, my sense was that if you could make a case that doing something was good and you had data to back it up, that there wasn't very much preventing that decision from actually being made. So... Taking into account what you're working on now, where do you see where do you see the research moving next? Where do I see it going next? I think that, you know, there's there's always this question of what is it that our models capture and what is it that they don't capture. And I think we do a good job of saying what it is that we're assuming about the world and what data we're going to take into account when we're building these models. Um, but at least the models that we're building right now or that I'm building right now are very simplistic in this respect. There's a lot going on, say, in the sports world that is just completely ignored. You know, If somebody gets injured, there is absolutely no record of this that goes into the model, and the model will just blindly uh, assume 
that a team hasn't changed from their last uh, outing. Or, you know, you can have some assumption that a team does change through time, but the models currently that I have are not taking into account injuries. And, you know, they're not taking into account all of the richness that people think that they uh, derive when they watch a sports match. You know, there's lots of sort of things that an expert can pick up on if they're watching closely. And I think incorporating more of that type of stuff into these models is, is very interesting. Danny Tarlow of Microsoft Research in Cambridge in the UK. Yeah, you know, Danny talks about this really fun applied stuff that, that he does, but I also just want to point out that he's, he's a, a real expert in several different areas of, of machine learning. And uh, in particular, he does really, really cool stuff uh, with structure prediction, which yeah, we talked about a few times. Definitely. So that's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode. Yeah.